Hi, I'm Mark One, BAFTA award-winning director, and this is the final part of the I Am. The Maybury's Lounge was alive with the music of Mozart. The ornate grey oak table was laid as finely as the department store window. It was Thursday night, the night of the Renaissance Society's bi-monthly meeting. All of the club members were female, in their late 30s to mid 40s, and wore immaculate outfits, conveying to some extent the glow of wealth. Well, it's almost Cabernet Day, isn't it? declared Constance, chairwoman of the division. Aha, yes, replied Evelyn. Trina, this is simply divine, added Angora amidst a chorus of wonderful and fabulous, and she's done a wonderful job. However, Constance appeared pensive. A hush quickly descended across the table, as when Constance was pensive, the rest of the Renaissance Society were pensive by default. Their judgmental faces centred on Trina. Constance broke the silence. I have to admit, I was a little unsure of you in the beginning, Trina. The ladies clung to her every word as she stared long and hard at Trina. But this has been a first-rate evening, You've really pulled it out, don't you agree, ladies? The uncertainty around the table instantly transformed into rapturous approval. Absolutely first rate. And where did you get this china? It's divine. It really is. And those kitten heels. Trina exhaled a long sigh of relief, beaming with pride. Finally, she'd made it. Amidst the hubbub, the kitchen door slowly creaked open. A dissevered Hal Maybury stood in the doorway. A second hush spread throughout the room, leaving only the sound of Trina's Mozart CD. Hal looked terrible, wounded, bruised and beaten. Evening, ladies. Hal smiled, displaying blood-stained teeth. The Renaissance Society recoiled collectively in horror. What's happened to you? I thought I told you not to... Trina bit her lip in fury. Long day, my dear. Hal followed Trina's eyes, boring onto the small bottle of whiskey in his hand. Purely medicinal. Ghastly, whispered Angora to Evelyn. Absolutely ghastly. Evelyn nodded in contempt. You've been fighting and drinking. Get out! Get out! Trina shouted. Look, uh, I'm a little short of change. You have anything for Stelios the cabbie? Wanted to give him something extra. Tween Elan Hasanbal! Tween Elan Hasanbal! Trina yelled repeatedly on an exponential upward curve of rage. I'll be in the shed. Hal grimaced and trudged through the kitchen, wincing with every step and grasping at a handful of canapes. On seeing Stephanie from the female-only spa, he briefly paused. You know, all that extra work you're putting in down the gym... It's really paying off. Oh, why, thank you, Hal, Stephanie blushed. The ladies collectively shot Stephanie a dark look. Hal trudged across the dark loom of the garden. In the lounge, tears streamed across Trina's cheeks. I'm so sorry. He's an animal. It's Eggy Eilat, she said, weeping into her aperitif. Constance, at the head of the table, rose to her feet and set down a chair next to Trina. As Trina sobbed, Constance comforted her, placing a hand on her shoulder 
and brushing the hair from her eyes. It's not always easy, is it? said Constance calmly. She looked around at the other members, who instantly and in unison tilted their heads in understanding. I've really tried, I've really tried. He, he was not meant to be here. Trina, we can pray for you. Pray? We pray? Trina added with great uncertainty. Constance nodded slowly in agreement. Everyone nodded slowly and in agreement. It might be a good idea, added Angora. Haven't you seen the TV? Constance asked. I have, but he's back. The Holy Ghost is back. Isn't that some kind of media stunt? He's back, and he could be anywhere, Angora interjected. At any time, added Constance. And he's taken vengeance. He could even be here right now. Evelyn's eyes darted around the ceiling of the Maybury dining room. Seriously? You'd better get on the right team, Constance added, looking into Trina's tearful eyes. It's okay. She cupped the back of Trina's head, stroking her hair. It's okay. You just have to let him in. He can help you. He can help your husband too. I'm, I'm not sure that this is me. It was in the moment she recalled that this was perhaps her only shared value within her marital relationship. She surveyed the entire table at the eyes upon her, at the weight of expectation, at her resolute failure to create the perfect dinner party. Somehow she found herself closing her eyes and slowly bowing her head. Constance began to pray. Our father, please help Trina. Please help her in this trying time. Give her strength and help her to hold her head up high. Our father, please cast out the evil that her husband may yet commit and spare him from your wrath. Spare him from your wrath, for he know not what he does. We know you have returned, our father. We have seen the signs. We know you walk among us again, and we are your servants, Lord. We, the members of the Finchley and Totteridge Renaissance Society, are ready to do thy bidding. We pray for you, Trina. We pray for you. For we know the Lord has returned. The Holy Ghost is here. The hour of judgment is at hand. He hath returneth, Trina. He hath returneth, replied the ladies in unison. He is returneth, Trina. He is returneth, replied the ladies once again. He is returneth, Trina. Trina was uncomfortable. However, all around her, the usually shark-like ladies of the Finchley and Totteridge Renaissance Society seemed unusually kind, maybe even optimistic. He is returneth, Trina slowly repeated. He is returneth. Hal stood on the lawn in the darkness, halfway in between his house and the shed, not sure whether to walk forwards, backwards, or just lie down. He just stopped, his body ringing in widespread pain, feeling the decline more than ever before. As he stood with his paunch overshadowing his feet, he popped another painkiller. From the fence, a match strike. He turned to see his neighbour's daughter, Darcy, standing on a box, her head peering into the Maybury garden. 
don't you understand the concept of private property? groaned Hal. Darcy blew smoke from her nose insouciantly. You shouldn't be doing that either. Doing what? That. Hal jutted his chin out at Darcy's cigarette. You smoke. Following my footsteps won't get you any place special. You do all right. What would your father say? Ever think about that? He doesn't visit too much these days. It's just me and mum. She passed out a couple of hours ago on the sofa with a bottle of vodka. She'll come too soon, I guess. She leaps through sometimes. She do that a lot? Yeah. I have an uncle somewhere in Manchester. Don't know where he is. Darcy disappeared behind the fence and reappeared with a fresh cigarette. She held it out, arms outstretched across the divide, smiling. I can't, Hal whispered softly. You've given up? It would be unethical. But you bummed one for me last week. That was when I wasn't... It's a long story, Hal groaned, his face moving into a patch of light, revealing his injuries. You've been hurt. Darcy looked concerned. Who by? Didn't have time to ask them. Darcy looked at Hal sternly. I hope you heard them. A light came on downstairs in Darcy's house, followed by a crash and a deranged call of her name. It was her mother. She's come too. I better go. Have a nice night out. I'm not going out, Hal protested into thin air looking on as a small silhouette entered the lounge. Where have you been? screamed Darcy's mother. The garden, Mum. Where have you been? I told you. What did I say about being out? You're like your father. From the garden, Hal heard a slap, followed by another. Mum! Darcy screamed, followed by a flurry of slaps close together. Hal's tired hand slid across to the lapel button and pressed it watching his feet become transparent. From the lounge of 13 Clifton Terrace, the sounds of Darcy's mother ceased as quickly as they had begun. A silhouette appeared in their patio window. Darcy's mother stood, staring across the grass, lighting a cigarette. Jesus H, said Hal amidst the shadows of their shed. Jesus H. He awoke dripping in sweat, a nightmare. He found himself rubbing the suit once again for reassurance. It was at least mid-morning on a Friday. Hal sat bolt upright in his favourite easy chair and checked his wounds. The bruises to his ribs and head were considerably less substantial, although he still looked like he'd been in a fight and lost. He deducted that the suit appeared to possess regenerative ability. The TV was still on for the night before. On the 24 Hours News Channel, a continuous helicopter shot of Camberwell Parkland immediately recognised it. A large crowd had congregated in the grassland. In the centre of the grassland was a giant circle, almost 150 feet in diameter, of burnt grass. Everything within the circle was charred. Charred trees, park benches and charred trash. At the epicentre of the scorched circle was an area of untouched green grass and in that lay the imprint of Hal's body, his arms thrown to the side, his legs together. It was a uniquely unmistakable symbol. Hal's imprint looked like a green, rotund, 
Holy Cross. Below it on the rolling ticker, new unexplained religious phenomena, Camberwell. The news anchor was in full flow. Four men were found at the scene, all blinded by light. Their names were Sam Kent, Aldous Rain, Leroy Carson and Carl Bumpy Hike. And in news just in, the men have confessed to a string of over 30 major crimes, two unsolved murders and have offered police full cooperation. When asked whether this unidentifiable Holy Ghost had had any influence on this decision, the men had no comment but said they all felt a sudden compulsion. The Archbishop of Canterbury is currently visiting the site hailed by locals as a shrine. A series of vox pops followed. I saw the light, no word of a lie, I saw it, I don't know what caused it, but it weren't human. I was asleep actually, it woke me. Felt like daytime, looked out across the grass and it was bright, exactly like a bright dome. As soon as I saw it, I knew it was him, you know, him upstairs. Better get to church, I guess. Either it's aliens or, well, I don't know what it is. Grass looks strange. Ain't even seen grass like that. And I've seen a lot of grass. Personally, I don't believe in any of it. Those criminals saw the light. That's clear. It's clear. Beware false prophets and people bearing false grifts. Anything false, really. Two unsolved murders, said Hal. Only told them I'd be watching them for the rest of their lives. Fancy that. He channel hopped. Flight BA-939 from Dusseldorf has just made the emergency landing at Heathrow with trapped landing gear. All of the passengers aboard the flight survived without injury. An aviation expert has described it as a miracle. In the arrivals terminal, a passenger screamed for joy. Thank you so much, Holy Ghost. I love you. I love you. Uh-oh, said Hal, staring into the screen. He changed channel again. There's been infighting between Catholics, Christians, Muslims and pagans on the Old Kent Road, with additional flashpoints in Stanford Hill and Southall. The source of the conflict is unknown, but sources believe it must be in some way linked to the recent supernatural events. We're now joined by Professor Silver, Professor of Theology at Trinity College. Professor Silver, thank you for joining us. What's your view on this uh, religious infighting? Well, essentially, I believe the flashpoint on the Old Kent Road is in fact a microcosm of global concerns, but essentially it's a battle of monotheism. They all wish to lay claim to who or what they perceive to be the source of these mysterious events, and it will continue and it will get worse. Do you believe there actually is a Holy Ghost? Is this a religious phenomenon or a supernatural one? Well, what's the difference? In the strictest sense of belonging to a specific religion, possibly not, but these phenomena of the last few days are still left unexplained. So, you're keeping an open mind? Well, yes, I would say so. Professor Silver smiled, a nervous smile. No, Hal groaned, looking at the footage. He channel hopped. On St Thomas's Hospital and other prominent buildings... H.G. had been written in giant spray paint letters by a graffiti crew wearing face masks, hoodies and carrying stylish walking canes. The crew left an online video. We are the disciples. We roll with he. Don't cross us or you'll end up on the cross. Oh no, Hal said and swapped channel. Theology 101. Oh no, Hal channel hopped. The pontiff has yet to make a statement. He channel hopped. Several airlines have laid on special charter flights to and from Lords to Camberwell via Stansted. 
Flights to London, especially from the USA, are completely sold out. We spoke to the Aviation Authority. This is normally the tail end of high season. There's been an unprecedented spike in scheduled and chartered flights. It's the busiest it's ever been. Whatever your beliefs or standpoint, the recent events have been spectacular for tourism. Oh God, no. Hal sighed at the screen. He channel hopped to see a man outside Westbourne Park bus garage holding a sandwich board with the words, he's back on it. And how long are you going to stand here? Asked the journalist. Till the end of next week. End of next week? Yeah, we'll pretty much be in Ragnarok by then, give or take a day. How Channel hopped, Channel 3, the same daytime show he'd watched a few days ago, and once again Osiris was an interviewee, a picture of sartorial elegance, dressed head to toe in white, white blazer, white trousers, white slacks, white Panama hat, waistcoat and tie, no longer sharing the sofa alongside other religious spokespeople. Osiris was the main event. Jesus, Triple H, gasped Hal. The plastic identikit presenter looked sombre as Osiris sat replenzent under the studio lights next to his agent. What did I tell you? All of this would come to pass. Will there be more incidents, in your opinion? Well, as I have previously stated on his very network, his work has only just begun. I think it's reasonable to presume... There will be much more of this to come. The regulation, as you put it? Indeed. Oh no, they won't. Hal groaned, pressed the power button on the TV remote, then groaned once more. <sighs> Opting against encountering Trina's rage head on, he stealthily closed the shed door, navigated to the back fence, and clambered over it into the lane of garages. He stopped to glance back at the house, then kept moving. As he walked away, the Maybury kitchen curtain slowly pulled back. Trina watched unmoved, her face pressed against the glass. Slowly she closed her eyes and made the sign of the cross. She said softly. The Finchley streets were unusually desolate for a Friday morning. Even the Booze and Mags convenience store was closed. The air was hot and sticky and a heat haze spread across the vanishing point of the road. In the window of one semi-detached house, a huge cloth holy cross hung. From another, bellowed a CD of choral hymns. Hal nervously crossed the road. Up ahead, a group of young kids played tag in their driveway. I'll be the Holy Ghost, shouted a girl with a frying pan attached to her head. No, I'll be the Holy Ghost, the small boy said and pointed his hands. Energy attack. Seeing Hal. The boy redirected his attack at the passerby. Pow, pow! Energy attack! Energy attack! Pow, pow! Biblical bindless! The eerie silence continued for street after street. The main roads were quiet, the side roads quieter. In all his years in Finchley, Hal had never experienced anything like it. Invisibility was a non-requirement. Nobody was around to see him anyway. In the distance, the sound of people. As he gravitated in that general direction, he began to pass the occasional pedestrian, an elderly West Indian couple, then a trio of Polish construction workers. Gradually, the streets became populated with uniform movement in the same direction towards the sound. Hal blended in amidst the steady streams of people. The group turned the corner onto the main road. It was total roadblock, an assortment of stalls, 
Vendors selling cheap vinyl prints of Holy Ghost t-shirts, baseball caps, tote bags, flashing crosses, plastic Jesus lives rattles and chaslet kebabs. The unruly bazaar with vibrant colours, smells, music and at the epicentre of the convergence, the local church gleamed in the sunshine. Hal was open-mouthed. As soon as the service ended, a mass of people streamed in through the main and side doors into the already packed church hall. Father O'Malley mopped his brow. With non-stop services day and night for the last few days, he was beat. His congregation had swelled exponentially to the point where he required volunteer stewards. All across the country and across faiths, there was a similar pattern. Father O'Malley retired to his private room, a medium-sized antechamber, took a seat, sipped his Irish coffee and exhaled a long sigh. He slid his glasses down to the bridge of his nose and rubbed his eyes, stifling the yawn. The door creeped open behind him. Father O'Malley asked the voice, but he was too tired to look around. I'm sorry, my son. The service is intermission for a little while. I'll be out soon. It was then Father O'Malley smelt something that he had not smelt within the walls of his Finchley church in some time. Cigarette smoke. He twisted in his chair to look, but was greeted by an empty room and a cigarette in mid-air smoking itself. Father O'Malley gawped, wide-eyed in astonishment. It's you. Mind if I close the door, said Hal from the other side of the room. Yes, but of course. Father O'Malley pushed his glasses back into position, his eyes darting around the empty space at the source of the voice. Don't worry, I'm still here. What can I do for you? I mean, how can I serve you? What I mean to say is... I was just passing, Hal interrupted. Oh, so you were just passing. I see. So, you like to pass through Finchley? Always. Oh, get some smokes, you know. You need to get what? Smokes. Your smoke? Sure I do. Do you drink too? Wouldn't trust a man who doesn't, father. Oh, well, I do. You do say eat, drink and be merry, I guess. I get my smokes and booze and mags while on my way to the bandy legs to meet Keith. Hal looked at Father O'Malley's shocked expression and paused. Oh, sometimes I forget. You can't see me, can you? Father O'Malley slowly shook his head no. This goes no further than these four stone walls, right? You have my absolute word on the Bible itself, so you do. Father O'Malley clutched the Bible, pressing his right hand onto it. Hal materialised on the other side of the room in the Chesterfield chair. Invisibility off. Father O'Malley gawped in awe. Pretty amazing, huh? said Hal with a tired, faint smile. Yes, yes, it's sir. Amazing. Father O'Malley was transfixed. So you're the Holy Ghost? I'm just a man. It's this that does it all. Hal gestured to the suit. Found her at some kind of crash site. Several days ago. Where? Trent Park Golf Course, 17th hole. Was a little drunk. Oh. I ruled it out of being Chinese. I'm pretty sure it's alien. One press of this button renders me invisible. It gives me additional strength too. Hal paused in thought, looking at the floor. There was a long silence. You've ever done all those things on the news in that? Some of them, Yes. Hal continued to look at the floor. He was tired. Some of them, though. Why are, have you come here? I'm giving up. Father O'Malley fell silent. 
Hal took a sip of tea. A couple of nights back, I saw a homeless man being assaulted. No one else was around, so I intervened. I don't know why I said it. I only wanted something scary to say to those punks. So I put the fear of God into them, literally. After that, well, it got kind of fun. Playing the superhero. I'm 52 and a superhero. That's a way to see out of redundancy. Now there are people flying from Lords to London to see miracles. It's all over the TV, radio, newspapers. There's a £1 million ransom, and I even have followers that call themselves the friggin' disciples. Oh, um, no offence, father. None taken. And you know what it's like to be a superhero? In real life? Hours wistful, looking up for a while. You feel at your optimum. Now four men are blind. There's social unrest, and I don't know what I'm doing anymore. Well, you must do what feels right. I could have gleaned that from a fortune cookie. I read this morning that crime numbers are the lowest since records began. The police are literally eating bagels and playing cards. They have so little to do. I know this as the several in my parish. A man who was about to commit suicide lives, and because of you, five unsolved murders have been brought to book. I've seen a lot in my time. But what you're doing, my boy? Well, that's something else. What are you saying? Father O'Malley took off his glasses. There are so many Bible stories I could quote right now about overcoming adversity. About the will of the few versus the might of the many. But that would be in my official capacity. You want to hear what I think? Father O'Malley paused. I think it doesn't matter one jot. The fact that you resist in yourself is inspiring people to be better. On my way to work today, people I didn't even know said hello to me and offered me free food so they did. They're just cashing in on the goodwill chips to avoid the wrath of me. They're trying. Listen, I, I don't even know your name. I never said it. They're trying. Impersonation of a deity is bad for your health. Yet you still do it. Given that entire tree of decisions which you could make, you use that thing you're wearing to do good when evil is your easiest option. I really ain't no saint, Padre. The wife will tell you that. Nobody is. Father O'Malley smiled. The door creaked open. Margaret and Maud, his elderly volunteer stewards, peered into the room. Father O'Malley, you won't believe it. The hall is full again, Margaret said, smiling. Maud sniffed the air, smelling a cigarette smoke. Both ladies focused on Hal staring at the floor, then at Father O'Malley, trying to ascertain what seemed wrong in this scene. We're sorry to interrupt, added Margaret. We'll be right outside. Thank you, ladies. I'll be there soon. That'll be all. Margaret and Maud closed the door, disappearing down the stone corridor. Father O'Malley's smoking again, Margaret whispered. Must be the stress. Maud nodded, back in Father O'Malley's private room. Hal pressed the lapel button. Invisibility. On. The wooden door opened. Just think about it. You can see me any time. If you want to. Father O'Malley said into thin air. With the door open, the sound of the distant crowd in the main hall grew only louder. I think your flock is getting restless. You're an unlikely hero, Father O'Malley replied. But Hal was gone. Father O'Malley stepped out to greet his growing congregation. Amidst the hundreds of new faces, one lady in a fuchsia twin set sprayed her perfume atomizer at the vagrant stood next to her. It was Trina. Hal took the suit home. Darcy! 
he cried out as he walked through the grass towards his small wooden outhouse home. There was no response. He pressed his thumb on the fingerprint recognition unit, entered and slid off his alien attire, carefully returning it to its special hangar. He took one last look around and pulled the power lever. With a final surge, the room fell silent. The monitors went black and the suit hung in shadow. He dressed himself in regular slacks and a shirt and sealed the heavy shed door shut. Hal spent the rest of his afternoon by the one place that did make sense to him, the meerkat enclosure at London Zoo. But instead of watching his playful furry companions, he found himself observing the passers-by, the children playing and the large packs of tourists digitally documenting everything, including their own documentation. Two Buddhist monks in orange robes passed a couple wearing I Heart HG t-shirts. Hal wondered what they made of it all, what they thought of his charade. No more, he said softly. No one heard. That evening, Hal found himself in a bandy legs, ale of the week in hand, on a bar stool next to Keith. He carefully positioned himself away from the television to avoid the 24-hour rolling news coverage. Can't you turn that junk off, Ted? He asked the landlord. Are you sick or something? This is the second coming. This is the Trinity. Hal had never recalled a time when Ted had been animated over anything other than being shortchanged. How's redundancy? Asked Keith. It's got good days and bad days. Keith looked at some of Hal's bruises. What the hell happened to you? One of the bad days. Hal tried to smile. Don't worry about it. Have you seen what is? Keith pointed to the TV. Yeah, Hal interrupted. How's the family? Kids are great, Hal. Not really kids anymore, though. Wife's all right. It's Jim that's not good. Tracy hasn't responded to the chemo. She hasn't got long. Jim was kind of hoping the Holy Ghost might visit and use his healing touch. He's even given up the alcohol and cigarettes. Right now, he's at that site in Camberwell. Oh, no. He should stay with her, said Hal, placing his head in his hands. He should stay. She's a great girl. I might go visit, but I've always had this thing about hospitals. Ted turned up a news item, which drowned everything, including the fruit machine, out. The kidnapper has stated if the Holy Ghost does not manifest by midnight, the girl will be shot dead. Will you look at that? The world's gone crazy. Keith looked tense. Hal took another sip of beer, trying to avert his eyes from the screen. The report continued. The kidnapper is believed to be a man called Richard Park. Police marksmen have surrounded the kidnapper's property in Highgate. A large woman of several gold chains screamed repeatedly. She's disappeared last night and now this. Please, Holy Ghost, if you're up there, please help my baby. Please, please. Hal averted his eyes, but caught something on the screen which made him freeze. You've got to be kidding me. I reckon he may get more than what he bargained for, that man, eh? Hal? Hal? Keith turned to an empty seat, and Hal rushing out of the door. Hal, you've left your pint. See that, Ted? He's left his pint. He's been acting awful strange of late. How so? It's not even last orders. Hal heard through the quiet suburban crescents and alleys, wheezing and coughing of every step, collapsing against the road sign. Last time. He forced out in between breaths. Everything was tough without the physical support of the suit. He approached his house, turned the key and ran straight through past the kneeling trina surrounded by candles. 
From his actions the previous night, he was prepared for a storm, but had no time to argue. Trina's eyes followed him as he darted out of the patio door and across the garden towards his favourite place. Then her eyes narrowed. With the lights at 13 Clifton Terrace all out, Hal placed his thumb across the fingerprint recognition scanner. With a bleep, the door unlocked and opened and powered up the shed. Did you miss me? He said, looking at the hanging suit bathed in shafts of light. It had seen better days, and so had Hal. He carefully removed it from the hanger and stood it on once more, the suit snaking up his body. Stepping into his rusty scimitar in the lane behind the shed, he put his foot down hard. The car screeched away and weaved through the North London streets, accompanied by the repeated RP sound of She sells, she sells on the seashore. Terminated Trina's elocution CD, he found the news. And police marksmen have surrounded the grounds of the Highgate house. We haven't heard any word from inside, but officers are believed to be in communication with Park. We're camped several streets away. The car came to a halt in a quiet lane in between Highgate and Hampstead Golf Clubs. Killing the engine, he looked tentatively at the suit in his rearview mirror. If this doesn't work out for any reason, he said softly, earnestly, it's been nice working with you. He found himself welling up for a second with a heavy feeling. Taking a deep breath, he pressed the lapel button. Invisibility on. Opening the driver's door, he snaked through the woodland in near silence. In the nearby streets, a crowd of hundreds had gathered holding candles. At the vanguard, the ladies of the Finchley and Totteridge Renaissance Society and Mr Singh, how bypassed the throng to reach the press area. The operation was already on a vast scale. The global press were everywhere. Journalists rehearsed pieces to camera, some already live on television. How eavesdropped on a reporter and her camera team. What if it's some kind of tabloid trap? They haven't got a picture of he yet. What if he doesn't show? I'd be more worried if he does. How sighed and continued stealthily past, gaining line of sight of the house. The property was large, surrounded by beautiful grounds with fountains on either side. The lights were off within, the building illuminated by several large police lights. The hostage negotiator, hunched over a phone, crushing an empty coffee cup, is giving us nothing until him upstairs turns up. By his side stood several armed police with tasers, submachine guns and thermal imaging goggles. How felt a Pavlovian shiver. In the distance, the crowd began to chant. Let him through! Several officers hurriedly peeled away from the grounds towards the cries. The crowd had multiplied tenfold. By the police barricade several streets away from the house stood an unusual man. He had a serene quality, was in his mid-thirties, and wore a white robe which reached to the floor. With his long hair, facial hair, piercing blue eyes and sandals, by all account, the man looked like Jesus. He stood, arms outstretched, beckoning the officers. The crowd virulently jeering the officers ahead of him. Please, let me speak to him, the man said softly and kindly to the police officers. Will you get back? This is a police matter, sir. But you know who I am the robed man said calmly. Please get to the side of the road, sir, replied the officer nervously. Let him in, the crowd chanted, changing to, let Jesus in. Over the talkback system, an unexpected order was given. 
the officer stepped aside and the robed man was let through. He strolled slowly, with arms outstretched, past the police cordon, through the grounds, with a small army of a police force watching. He continued until he was stood on the lawn facing the building. Richard, it is I. Please lay down your arms, the robed man said calmly. The door of the house creaked open. Richard, I know you can hear me. Peace is the only way. Come with me to pray, Richard. The Jesus lookalike's entire demeanour conveyed benevolence. Come on, come on now, he said as if summoning a pet. Hal manoeuvred closer to the building. A figure stepped out of the shadow of the doorway, holding an automatic rifle and a human shield. The figure was recognisable from the television broadcast as Richard Park. However, his hostage, screaming terrified, was Hal's neighbour, Darcy. Richard took one look at the road man on the lawn, sneered, and buried a shot into Jesus lookalike's right shoulder, forcing him to the deck. Help me! screamed Darcy. Oi, I'm losing blood here! The Jesus lookalike shouted, writhing in agony on the grass, reverting to his usual Cockney accent. Richard turned up his high-power rifle onto the four large police work lights, blasting each lamp with deadly accuracy. The grounds fell immediately into darkness. Darcy screamed again as she was pulled back into the house, the door violently slamming shut. I want the main event, not the warm-up act. Richard slammed down the phone and watched the live television feed see the robed man stretched away by paramedics. Don't worry, baby, Richard said, pressing the gun to Darcy's temple. It'll be over soon enough. One way... Or another. Darcy wept, desperately trying to wriggle free. Do you want sooner, eh? You want sooner? Is that it? Tears streamed down Darcy's cheeks. Is that what you want? No. Is that what you want? Richard looked at the time and began to whisper in her ear. The Lord is my rock, my fortress and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise and I am saved from my enemies. The police PA system was now in constant communication, but Richard wasn't listening, nor was he alone. In the corner of the room, unseen by all, stood Hal Maybury atop a table, looking down over Richard and Darcy. He stood watching, judging the distance between Park and Darcy then spread his arms, processing an instant recall of all the wrestling he had ever consumed on Dickie Davis's world of sport. Hal launched his rotund frame high into the air. On hearing a table creak, Richard immediately emptied two shots into the room. A second later, an invisible force collided with him so hard it knocked him to the ground. Bingo, said Hal. It felt like the right thing to say. He didn't know why. Hal lay on top of Richard, wheezing, fighting for breath. Richard's lucky shots had struck the suit in the chest, in the same spot as from his assault in Camberwell. His magic suit flashed in between transparency and visibility, at random, allowing Richard a chance to see his assailant. You're not he? Park mumbled under the heavy mass of the visible and invisible Hal sitting on his chest. Indeed, Hal sighed. 
punching Park into the face until he was unconscious. He wasn't feeling biblically worthy. He pushed the gun out of reach and rose on his invisible knees, groaning. The shells trapped in a hexagonal material in Hal's chest fell to the floor. Hal alternated in and out of visibility. Wheezing, he fell to the floor in agony. Mr Maybury, Darcy cried. What are you doing here? Hal struggled for breath. When you hit early retirement, you can find yourself with a lot of free time on your hands. It's, it's you. You're the Holy Ghost. Hal checked his chest, but the strong bulletproof material saved him once again. He looked at Darcy trembling. They'll all be coming. Hal grabbed his chest, heaving. Mr Maybury, stay. You're safe now. Hal sensed the incoming forces of law and took a final look at the clock. The hand moved on to midnight. He scuttled down the stairs into the wine cellar. What would Charlton do in this situation, he wondered. Armed police burst through the front doors into the house, quickly siphoning through the back doors seconds later. They discovered Richard, knocked out, with no other sign of entry, and Darcy looking at the stairwell leading to the cellar. Hal heard multiple footsteps creaking on the floor above. The suit fizzled and cackled, malfunctioning. He lay in a corner of the cellar against the wall. He knew it was a matter of time before he'd be discovered. The rows and rows of wine formed long, dark corridors. The fake crackle of police communication systems and footsteps from the room above became louder. He looked for any other exit, but there appeared to be only one, the way he came in. He tried the lapel button once again. It was unresponsive. He sat for a while, then grabbed a tester bottle of wine at the end of the rack, which had been previously opened, and took a swig. Wine almost fit for a king, he thought. Almost. The police began to make their way down the cellar steps, the wooden stairs creaking as they descended. Hal looked at the broken button once more, then down the top of the suit in the darkness amidst his fibrous grey chest hairs were some brightly coloured, broken glowing cables. They felt organic, not electronic. Carefully, he tried to reunite the cables with one hand, the other pressing the lapel. The police continued down the steps, slowly, cautiously, searching with their torch-mounted rifles. With shaky hands, Hal tried repeatedly to marry the cables, his breathing fast, desperate. A torchlight swept along the near wall, closer and closer. Hal reached in again, pressed a button and closed his eyes. The torchlight moved on to him. Through his closed eyelids, he felt the heat of the torch. Sweat dripped from his forehead. The light stayed on him. Clear, said the officer and slowly walked back up the stairs. Hal sighed and looked down. Invisibility. On. Then he gasped in relief. The gasp and his shaky hands disconnecting the organic cables. Invisibility. Off. Hal sat for a while on the concrete floor, looking out across the shelves of bottles, wondering what it was all about, thinking of nights and adventures past. Thank you, he said to the suit. As he sat on the floor, legs splayed out, paunch in between. Hal felt unusually serene. He decided to finish the tester bottle. It would have been rude not to. The following morning, Father O'Malley was furiously ironing his shirt in his small office when he heard a knock at the door. There's no service till 9am, he replied, working the steam button into the collar. 
Hal opened the door, dressed in jeans. Both men studied each other for a moment. So? You didn't give up a C? Father O'Malley smiled. <laughs> Guess not. It's early. Please, have a seat. But Hal remained in the doorway. I'm not staying. Oh, you're not wearing it? Little malfunction. Left her in the safest place. But now comes the hard pit to fix her. Not sure if my telecommunications experience fetches so far as alien technology, but might as well give it a try. Hal raised his home-based carrier bag, clinking with newly acquired tools. Anyway, I better go. Just checking in. Any time, my friend. Hal made his way out and then stopped. Still, don't believe in any of this, you know. Him upstairs stuff. That ain't changed. I'm just your regular guy, in decline, with secret identity issues and an alien suit. Of course. What can I call you? You do that Hippocratic Oath stuff, right? Oh, for the confessional? That'll do. Hal paused and had a scratch. Hal. My name is Hal. Connor. You know some good has come out of this, so it has. Street Spirit is back at number one. Father O'Malley smiled. Hal looked blank. It's a record, he added. But Hal was still blank. I'll see you later. Mysterious ways and all that. See you later, Father. The streets were quiet. Mr. Singh of Booze and Mags waved to Hal in passing. The kids in the streets were arguing. I'll be the kidnapper. No, I'm the kidnapper. I'm going to use my plus ten condemned to hell attack. Yeah, then you'll know what time it is. I'm going to use my Vishnu block. What's a Vishnu block? It is written. As Hal approached his Finchley home, he became paralysed by a sudden bad feeling. As he withdrew his keys, he smelt smoke. Looking up, smoke was billowing over his roof in the breeze. He forced the keys into the lock, swinging the door open, and then hurried inside. The house was safe, but as Hal walked through the kitchen to the patio, he saw Trina in the garden in an immaculate white long dress and flat white shoes. She held a wooden torch aloft. At the back of the garden was rage and fire, spitting cinders of wood and ash. The shed was ablaze. Hal rushed towards it, but was beaten back by the heat of the flames. Trina, what have you done? He is close, Hal, she said, holding the lit torch. Who is? The Holy Ghost. I needed to shield you from your vices. What? Alcohol. Smoking. Television. Oh no, Al said sadly. Trina began to pray and held her hand on his head. Hal darted to the rusty spigot, attached the hose and slowly turned it. He is coming, Hal. The spigot finally released some water, but the pressure was pathetic. Hal watched the shed burn and dropped the hose. Mr. Maybury, Darcy shouted as she ran into the garden. But Hal stood, unable to move, the shed burning in broad daylight in front of his eyes. Mr. Maybury, you can stop it. I can't. I can't. Hal inhaled the smell of petrol fumes of burning wood. The fire was intense. Even part of the fence had caught a light. Hours later, when the fire services departed, Hal checked the wreckage. There was no suit or casket in the shed, just cinders and rubble. It, it was for the best, Trina repeated earnestly. 
E is back, Trina mumbled fervently in Hungarian whilst Hal gazed at his reflection in the charred broken mirror for perhaps longer than he should. And so it was, he said quietly. Tabitha the cat rubbed herself against his legs, purring. The separation was swift, possibly the most amicable exchange in their short marriage. Hal left 14 Clifton Terrace to Trina. He became a lodger in the attic room of a young trendy Buddhist couple in Chalk Farm. A whole month had passed and the Holy Ghost hysteria had gradually died down. Global economics was once again at the forefront of the news. It had also been a month since Hal had touched alcohol, although at times he missed it. He spent the majority of his days in his favourite place which he discovered on his invisible journeys, the Caribbean Centre in Camden. Lodged above a shop, he played out the days playing dominoes and eating plantain and rice and soaking up the laughter. The well-dressed gentlemen of the Caribbean Centre were always laughing and quickly accepted Hal, but everyone knew that he carried with him a sense of emptiness and loss that no one could quite explain. It was a Friday night where... During a game of gin rummy came a knock at the door. Harp the Antiguan ambled over to answer it. Who there? Winston asked, sneaking a look at Hal's hand. Wait, man! Harp called along into the corridor looking down. Then he looked back at the table. Hal, it's for you. Must be the wrong address. I don't think so. Don't look at my cards. Hal smiled to Winston as he placed his hand face down and walked over to the doorway. As he got there, he stopped dead in his tracks, for in the doorway on the floor lay the charred metallic box. It was unmistakably the burnt casket from the crater. Harp, who left this? Some long man left it and walk away. Al kneeled and popped open the lid. It slowly opened. The inside of the casket was untouched, and in the centre of it, the suit, looking as good as new, folded and lit by the golden rim light of the casket. What at? asked Harp, looking at the strange metallic box. What did the man look like? replied Hal. Only saw him from behind. Some long man in a black coat. Real tall, you won't miss him. Hal grabbed the suit, tucked it under his arm and ran down the corridor. I take it you're out of this round, shouted Winston after him. Hal darted down the stairs and burst through the door into street level, looking both ways. Underneath a homemade alcoholic research signpost, he saw Horace, the homeless man, once again. Horace took one look at Hal and pointed towards the park. Hal threw whatever monetary shrapnel was to hand into his lap and ran best he could until he arrived at the park gates. On the other side, in the distance, a very tall man strolled across the dark grass. Wait! Hal called, but the giant man kept walking. It took Hal three attempts to get his large frame over the railing and he wheezed and retched. Then he looked at the suit and put it on. It slid up him. Hal began to run. With added speed, he gained on a giant figure. Wait! Please! He cried. The giant discarded his long black coat on the grass, but kept walking. Please! Hal called out. The giant stopped in the centre of the park and turned. His face was a plastic mask and he's wearing an identical suit to Hal's. You're from up there, aren't you? The crash site at the golf course. Hal pointed towards the light-polluted sky. 
We are indeed from a distant galaxy, Hal. But nothing crashed. The giant took off his hat and gloves. He had no hands and no face. Slowly the giant removed his shoes, leaving the appearance of an invisible body inhabiting a visible suit. Hal reached out, passing his hands through the head. There was nothing there. Not all life in the universe looks the way you'd expected, Hal. The suit replied. Hal found himself rubbing his suit once again for reassurance. It took him a moment to thoughtfully look at his own retire. Is it? He said, looking down. Yes, she's alive and fully functional. Hal noticed additional buttons on his wrists. What do these do? You'll find out soon enough. The giant suit replied. I must return. Wait! Why me? Why did you bring it back to me? We're watchers. We don't normally intervene. The giant paused and said softly with a smile. But well, you're good to watch, Hal. The earth began to shake violently all around him. Hal was thrown to the floor, then found himself falling, rocks colliding all about him. The alien suit waved goodbye and disappeared deep into the earth. When Hal opened his eyes, he discovered himself once again at the bottom of a canyon, with steep rock walls billowing with steam and a faint smell of sulphur escaping from vents in between the rocks. Where the alien suit had stood and disappeared seconds before lay a fluttering white stack of paper. Hal moved closer over to it and picked it up. It was a newspaper with the headline, Who is Diablo? Below the headline was an article on a new supercriminal with a propensity to make things burn. Hal folded up the paper and began the ascent to the rim of the canyon. Wheezing as he'd reached the top, he looked back to see a grey fog roll into the canyon, engulfing and circling it. With a deep tone, the canyon was gone and everything was parkland once more. Hal lay on his back on the grass, looking at the night sky. Mr Maybury, said a familiar voice. He looked up to see Darcy standing above him. She was unusually excited. Darcy? Hal sighed in relief. How did you get here? Look, look, the big man gave it to me, Darcy replied. Hal refocused to take a long look at her. Darcy was wearing a grey jumpsuit with hexagonal patterns on it. It was identical to his. Thought you needed a partner. A what? Jesus H. I work alone, most definitely alone. Hal rose to his feet, took one look back at where the canyon once was, and then slowly strolled back towards the gate. Darcy followed. What was that hole? she asked. I don't really know. You want a cigarette? And when I told you about that already. Think we need a bigger shed, Hal? It's Mr Maybury to you. Mr Maybury, I was thinking of a name. What do you think my name should be? What about Archangel of Death? Do you like that? I like that. I'm just going to be totally awesome, you know. You and me, fighting crime. Pow, pow. She said, making martial arts moves. Hal walked determinedly back towards the park gates and looked out across the North London skyline. But a smile crept slowly across his face. Pow, pow. Who'd have thought?
Thanks for listening to the I Am. The I Am is now available to buy on Kindle. Check out Amazon.com, download it, and tell your mates. It's been an absolute pleasure. My name is Mark One. Peace. Super, super, super. Altitude 1600.